0: Coming to you from ACOG's annual scientific meeting in San Francisco, I'm Dr. Matt Bernholtz for ReachMD. I'm joined by Dr. Mark S. DiFrancesco. He's the president-elect of the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists. Uh, Dr. DiFrancesco, welcome to the
1: program. Thank you. I'm, uh, great to be here.
0: It's good to have you. So you are just about to come in. Uh, when we say president-elect, we're talking within a matter of hours you're going to be the president.
1: Tomorrow morning, 24 hours. <laughs> 24 hours. Yes, sir.
0: Tell me a little bit about yourself before we move in on some of your, uh, the initiatives and your vision
1: for ACOG. Sure. sure. I'm uh, in general OBGYN practice. I've been in practice for private practice for 31 years in Waterbury, Connecticut. Uh, After about 15, 18 years of of combined OB and GYN practice, I started to also look into um, the the practice management world. I I went back to school on a part-time basis and got an MBA and started working, developing a large group practice in Connecticut, uh, which then um, led me to reducing my my clinical work to uh, essentially office GYN only for these last 10 years or so, uh, and also added to that a lot of administrative work. So I was chief medical officer for Women's Health Connecticut, which included 200 OBGYNs in Connecticut, largest uh, single-specialty group practice at that time in the country, devoted to women's health care. And uh, it got me very interested in, uh, in practice management. So, my forte, if you will, is practice management, what's going on in healthcare, healthcare policy, et cetera. Uh, and at the same time, I still see patients in my office because, again, that's the last thing I want to give up. Uh, I love taking care of patients.
0: Was that part of the game plan when you moved in on the MBA, or was that, uh, was that something you didn't necessarily expect uh, getting so heavily entrenched in the practice management side?
1: Absolutely. Great question. Actually, after, between college and medical school, I worked in a bank for three years, so I actually had a little business background felt I wasn't doing enough for society so I went back to school to become a doctor and after about 15 years of medicine felt that I really needed some business education because of what was going on in the healthcare industry a consolidation of, of payers and just a lot of uh, uh, a lot of infringement into medical decision making by uh, policymakers and by payers and whatnot so I said you know what I really need some more formal educational training and one thing kind of leads to another and before you know it because of that educational, uh, background and getting the MBA, kind of resurging my interest in uh, in the business side of things, I realized that I could also contribute to the specialty by helping our practices survive. You know, so really helping to, uh, to keep our practices whole and intact and all that with some of the business experience I had. But again, I never wanted to walk away from the clinical side of things because that's so important to me. Of course. And did that requisite experience,
0: uh, in addition to your clinical background, uh, with practice management, sort of, Put you on the path towards uh, leadership roles in ACOG, or was that always always in the cards?
1: That was always in the cards too, because from when I was board certified in the mid '80s, uh, I became department chair in my community hospital that, that I was practicing in, and, and as department chair, got involved with the ACOG local section in Connecticut. And and after several years, rose to the chairmanship of that Connecticut section. And then from there, uh, parlayed that into a district chair for the larger New England district. And then from that into a national office at the secretarial level unrelated to the mba unrelated to the business world i think that was really just really believing in organized medicine in the in the, the, the way that acog practiced it at least that we were doing things for our patients and really we were a fantastic organization 93% of obgyns who can be an acog are an acog we have one of the highest participation rates of all the professional societies and uh, and that's you know you don't you don't need an mba to be president of acog let me put it that way so. <laughs> well it's not
0: going to be come to any surprise to anyone uh, that you'd move in uh, to this role. You do have a, a strong, demonstrated track of leadership at ACOG. But now that you're moving in, and as we said, starting tomorrow, get right, going. Right, uh, exactly. Air Force One will fly you all over the place. That would be nice. <laughs> what um, What's on the game plan for you? What, what's the vision that you want to bring sure. into ACOG this year? Sure.
1: My vision is actually threefold. I want to do something for our patients, something for our specialty, and something for ACOG, for our organization. Uh, my predecessors, uh, Dr. Conry and Dr. Jennings, uh, the last two presidents, have started us on the path of looking at women's health generally. So Jeannie Conry, two years ago, developed the uh, Well Woman's Care Task Force and kind of helped to define what should be done in a well, well woman visit and, and how we should be taking care of our patients. Dr. Jennings, recognized because of some of the changes, brought about by the Affordable Care Act, et cetera, hopefully there will be a lot more people covered and who will be seeking our care. And we need to be more efficient in how we deliver that care. So we need to work in teams and have collaborative providers work with us and kind of change, kind of re-engineer how we do practice. And I'm taking those, those two platforms or planks of the platform to start with and trying to expand that now and say, okay, let's really focus on, on something that we can make a great uh, positive impact on in, population, in terms of population health and looking at particularly obesity and smoking. These are very hard things to address, uh, but I think they're, they're out of control. Certainly obesity is out of control in this country. Smoking, making a little bit of a dent, but 780,000 people per year in this country die from obesity and smoking effects versus 70,000 every year who die from breast, ovarian, uterine, or cervical cancer. So in part, that's because we do such a great job on the GYN side of things, and we're helping to seek and destroy, you know, early cancers on the GYN side. But we're not doing a lot to, to stop people from getting obese and stop smoking. So we could keep doing what we're doing on the GYN side, but add to that some, some more comprehensive approach to our patients. And if we can make a dent there, we could really do a lot more than we're doing already anyhow. And I think we can, we can, we can help.
0: It's really interesting that you mentioned the obesity epidemic and the potential role that ACOG can play mm-hmm. and uh, the initiatives that you can roll out there. Right. Um, Dr. Conry had spoken about the traditional reticence that there's been, not just in among the OBGYNs, but among many specialists uh, worldwide when it comes to approaching obesity. Sure. How do you envision being able to tackle such a big problem? And right. I no pun intended in that, but how right. do you yeah. how do you envision moving forward with that and actually... Creating meaningful um, applicative interventions.
1: Sure, yeah. I, well, I think um, we have to first broach the subject. I think it, it used to be taboo, certainly not so much smoking, because I think people are more comfortable telling patients not to smoke. But obesity, uh, especially if you're very thin and very trim and you know, it's easy, to, it's easy for you to say, you know, to tell other people to lose weight. Uh, I'm blessed, I guess, with a little bit of extra weight. So I could start this conversation by saying, you know what, we both need to lose some weight this year and, and point it out to people. But you can't just tell somebody, even in a joking fashion, you know, we need to lose some weight and then see you next year for your next visit. So I think we have to kind of develop an ongoing program for our practices where we get a patient who's interested in it. We get them some dietary advice we put them on a schedule of every once a month you come back just to get weighed almost like a weight watchers or we outsource it to weight watchers and i don't mean to use you know that particular commercial brand but and anybody who can provide uh, you know, wait services, in other words, in our neighborhoods or whatever. So we need to be tied in. We need a care coordinator in the office. That's why we need a team, you know, to figure out what resources are in our the area of our practice that we can refer a patient to. And if all else fails, you bring them back to the office so they know they're going to be weighed in once a month, so they know that you put them on a schedule. So a patient who's really engaged uh, understands that you really are serious about doing this. Now, that also means changing the healthcare care system. That means making sure that the insurers are willing to pay for that. I would think that they would be rather have patients losing weight and being healthier downstream and therefore it would be worth their while to pay a small e code for that visit or whatever. Uh, but if not, it does. It almost doesn't matter because I think ultimately we're going to be paid for, for value, not for volume. I think ultimately the healthier we can get our patients to be, the more we're going to do well from that uh, in terms of keeping our practices thriving and surviving and all that. So I think it behooves us to not worry about the payment up front and just get the patients in, uh, intervene with our patients and, and, and kind of sell that story. But it, it changes the way we do things. And as you know, practices today are so overburdened with with other regulatory things with adoption of electronic medical records with other things that really do um, uh, interfere with with the practice of medicine sometimes uh, that's why we really need to look at reengineering a little bit how we practice that's why a team is needed and that's why i think more and more doctors are going to larger group practices where some of these resources are there it's very hard to do that in the one or two doctor group so as much as acog might be able to help by producing templates toolkits scripts uh, to use when you talk with patients, I think those kind of things we can help with. But in the long run, the system has to change. Right.
0: I think you perfectly answered my follow-up question, which is mm-hmm. going to be in the downstream versus upstream beta of where the most meaningful change can happen. Mm-hmm. You know, it sounds like the organization is going to play a responsible role in trying to implement recommendations, right. but it also has to start at the practice level, right. and there has to be a support structure for the people in practice, exactly. especially in the smaller practices. Exactly.
1: So that's, the, that's what we're doing for patients. If we have time, I'll tell you a little bit more about what we're going to try to do for the specialty. Yeah, please do. Which is looking at uh, physician satisfaction, or dissatisfaction is a better word. Uh, Every year or so, Medscape comes out with a national study that does show, uh, they they survey 25 different specialties typically. Consistently, we come in third or fourth from the bottom in terms of being satisfied. Uh, Not very good burnout a burnout survey just came out we were second or third from the top so very very sad anyhow but again given all the constraints that all practices not just OBGYNs, but certainly we take it on the chin but from the medical liability point of view more than many other specialties uh, then you've got just overall perception at least of loss of autonomy loss of societal respect and we're just becoming a commodity and you know it's it's just different anyway uh, it, it, people are burned out and they're they're depressed anyhow. So I'm saying we take the triple aim of providing better care at lower costs and, and keeping our patients happier and make it the triple aim plus one. And the plus one is physician satisfaction because unhappy physicians can't provide good quality care. I think it's as simple as that. They, they don't, they, their heart's not in it. They don't, they're not excited to go to work in the morning, and that's not a good thing. So what we're going to do is use our, our section and, and district leadership to kind of disseminate surveys, analyze, root cause analysis type of thing. Even though we kind of have an idea of what's causing a lot of this dissatisfaction, we'd like to document it and really say these are the things. Okay, now what can we do something about and what can we help with? So we're hoping there's a little bit of a Hawthorne effect so that just studying it might help to improve it a little bit. At least people know we're trying to do something. But also maybe something will come out of this that will help us improve things so that we can really restore some health to to our practices and then that will help us improve patient care.
0: It fascinates me that, mm. in a time in which burnout has been a crisis for many years mm. now, that the root causes still aren't necessarily documented. Mm. I mean that's what amazes me yeah
1: yeah well, I think it's easy to assume it's uh, it's, it's uh, decreased reimbursement. Harder work, uh, just not as much fun, you know, as it used to be, and government regulations and administrative interference from insurance companies. All the, but you know, let's try to really put a get some numbers to to prove that. I think maybe something else may turn up that also may suggest a way to approach it. Even if we can't change some of the things, some of the causative factors, there may be other ways we can change our reaction to them or or deal with them in a different way. Again, with a team approach to healthcare, where let's design the system to absorb that, uh, those shocks and, and take it off the doctor's back, you know, I think. But that's why it's tough to do it when you're a solo physician. You, know, right. you don't have the resources to do that. And then for ACOG, basically, we're going to take another look at our strategic planning. And about every five years or so, we try to revamp our strategic plan, at least review it. And the time is up for us to do that. So we're going to kind of, again, look at, you know, where does ACOG want to be In 2020, so we're going to basically call it ACOG 2020, and basically start looking at the uh, the strategic plan that's currently in place, see what is still relevant and what might need to be adjusted to get us to where we want to be in 2020.
0: And on the technology question, uh, I had the opportunity to speak to some people who were assessing ACOG's adoption. of social media, digital media, gave them a good review, said that uh, it was a strong early adoption, that Excellent. the younger membership is coming on board because of that. They drive it, uh, yes. Do you envision that being part of the strategic plan? Yes,
1: yes, absolutely, because I think uh, better apps, for instance, uh, we've got a basic one now, but we need to improve that. We need more apps that the public wants to use also, not just our members, and and uh, podcasts and just other ways to reach people in, in um, digestible bits rather than a two-hour long lecture on a a webinar or something like that. So I think we'll definitely be changing that. Our young members are really helping us drive that. And definitely some change in uh, in some of our leadership over the past couple of years has also helped to uh, really promote that.
0: And this is a tenuous period in the political landscape of healthcare. Mm, yes. Do you envision the strategic plan becoming fluid to those potential changes that might come along? Sure.
1: I think that's part of it. I think it has to be a living document, in a sense. And, and anything living has to be amendable on the fly, basically, to, to uh, account for things that change. So we can't be—this day, especially this day and age, we cannot take the typical— We'll wait to the next board, board meeting to deal with this, or we'll have another planning session or whatever. We have to have a, a team in place that could just, you know, on the one hand, you don't want to keep going left and right and left and right, left and right, but on the other hand, you want to be able to respond uh, appropriately. Better if we could be proactive and anticipate change. But at the very least, we should be able to react to unexpected change uh, and turn on a dime if we need to, to stay fluid. You know, absolutely. it seems like a great closing thought. But is there anything else that you want to add for
0: our audience that I might not have asked you that I'd uh, like to put out there? Uh, for our particular healthcare professional audience,
1: just uh, come to DC next year when we're doing our 2016 meeting at the close of my year and you could hear about how we did. But uh, <laughs> we'd love to see you in Washington next year. Oh, we'll be happy. To, we'll definitely be there. Great. Thanks, Matt. <laughs> Appreciate it. Well, that,
0: I very much want to thank uh, Dr. DiFrancesco, uh, President elect of the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists. Again, thanks so much for your time, Dr. Great. Dr. Francesco. Thanks, Matt. Appreciate it. <laughs> If you've missed any part of this episode or if you want to check out other episodes on ReachMD, visit ReachMD.com. And thanks, as always, for listening.